Welcome to Brett. Moses is one of the most famous, beloved, complicated, and fascinating characters in the Bible. God chooses him and uses him to do extraordinary and history-defining things. He's a flawed and broken person, but nevertheless a truly great leader. In this series, we draw on his example to learn what real leadership looks like in God's kingdom and how all of us, however we view ourselves, can grow not just in our leadership, but more importantly, in our faith and maturity as God's disciples. My name is Hannah, if we haven't met, and I lead uh, the church that meets here with Ed, who's there. Um, this last Friday, I was collecting my high school freshman daughter from uh, her last period of the day, signing her out early, and um, I mean, something you should probably know about Brits in general, I think, and maybe, maybe this is true for Americans who haven't had a public high school experience, that there is something about what we watch on TV, because we as Brits watch a lot of your TV and your movies, and there is something kind of awesome about uh, American public high schools, just the rows of lockers. And in our case, it's got this very grand, uh, built in 1931, gothic facade. And uh, it's just, I, I always feel kind of cool uh, as I arrive there as a 43-year-old woman who is a mum. And I'm walking up these stairs. There's a little skip in my step. It's nearly the weekend. And I catch this foot in the pant leg here. And it's not a quick, elegant fall. It's a real arms everywhere. Uh, took about six steps to actually reach and hit the floor. And in the process of that, I was holding my phone in this hand. And I guess my first thought is, I don't want to smash this. So I threw it. <laughs> at the door, the glass door, uh, where there was a security guard and a crowd of teenagers, as well as several other teenagers standing around me. And thank you, because the correct response to somebody falling that way, who hasn't obviously hurt themselves, is laughter. What I got was, oh my God, is she okay? Nobody laughed with me, and thank you. That's all I needed. It's got absolutely nothing to do with anything that I'm speaking on. I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has got something to do with humility and all sorts of things, um, and the togetherness of laughter. Uh, but that's all. We are. Uh, this is the fourth in our series on leadership um, from the uh, life of Moses from the book of Exodus. And I did have a thought as I was preparing it that um, it might feel a bit niche. Um, that not all of us do identify as leaders so, um, and if we're not currently working in leadership, in a leadership capacity in any way, or have, or plan to in the future, so kind of a sense of what's this got to do with the rest of us. Um, so I would just like to point out, as we begin, that um, to be a Christian is to accept that you are being called to a degree of leadership. It may not be of a, kind of a structured way in an organization or the head of anything, um, but the story of the Bible is the story of God using ordinary people to do extraordinary things when they accept his call to follow him. And this is, the same is true for all of us. Jesus loves you absolutely in spite of anything that you can ever do for him and through him in the kingdom. But conversely, receiving his love 
receiving his understanding, his gospel, his way, compels us to give it away, to model it, to share it. And there is a degree of leadership to this. Um, and this is where I'm going to end up again um, at the end of the talk. But I just wanted that to be in your mind in case, in case anyone was sitting here going, this literally, what's this series got to do with me? <clears throat> where um, we're going to end up today is the, is the base of uh, Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up and and hears from God and uh, gets all the detailed instruction about what it is, what his law is and the Ten Commandments and all that good stuff. And where I'm beginning today is where Bill left off last week, um, having crossed the Red Sea. And, and that's a 22-day period by best guesses. Um, but it, it includes a lot of vignettes that I suspect you're familiar with. It includes the miraculous provision of manna and quail, the striking of the rock, uh, with Moses' staff to produce water. It includes that scene where uh, the Amalekites attack and you know, Moses stands there and, and Aaron and her hold up his hands. Um, it also includes a lesser-known story about Jethro, the Midianite priest, which I'd like to end up with this morning as well, if we have time. I'm covering about 20 minutes' worth of text if we were to read it all out. So I hope you will forgive me if we don't do that. Um, and it's not because I don't believe entirely in the importance of reading scripture as it is in its, in its wholeness and letting it speak to us. Um, it's just uh, purely because I don't think you want to sit here for all of that and have a talk on top of it as well. And I think that I'm right about that guess. Um, so I'm going to be kind of picking bits from it as I go and making thoughts on it as I go. And I'd like you all to spare a thought for Kari, who's got to follow me um, on lyrics, um, picking out a few verses here and there. So let's get going. Chapter 15, 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Skipping to chapter 16. Then the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death which is very reminiscent, if you were here last week, of the way that they spoke to Moses about the encroaching Egyptian army, the other side of the Red Sea. Um, so I'm going to skip over a lot of grumbling and the Lord hearing their grumbling and letting them know how he's going to provide for them. And we get to verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone gather as much as they need. And then they're told, as we know, um, to not keep any until the next day. Some of them do in this account, and it spoils, and Moses gets angry. And then there's a curious bit. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, so bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left and keep it till the next morning. Note, just an observation, that they have not yet actually been given a command to obey Sabbath. 
um, and yet they're being told to here, which is a nudge to the idea that we're not necessarily supposed to read this story in, its, in a linear form entirely, a point to which I shall return. Verse 35, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. So they're good on the food, but water is still an issue, so let's keep going. They've camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, here we go again. Why, do you bring, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? One of the most striking bits of this account, if you were to read it in its entirety, is how much mentioning of grumbling and now quarreling there is. Exodus 12 has told us that there are 600,000 men in the wilderness, equating to a whole heck of a lot more if you include women and children, which I always think we should do. Let's include women and children. Uh, so it's probably more like something more than two million people in the desert without water. If something doesn't happen very quickly, everybody is going to die. Actually, I think grumbling and quarreling and the fear about that is pretty relatable. And this is the point. They're in slavery for 430 years. The Lord decisively and precisely delivers them from their captors. He gives them specific instruction followed by specific action over and over and over again. Divide up a precise household to lamb ratio. Mark your doors in a very specific way with blood. Roast it over a fire in a very specific way. And I will save you. Stay by the water. Walk now. Stop now. And I will save you. If you need food, how it's going to work. I get it. You need saving? I'll save you. Now you need water. Yes, death by dehydration is notoriously not a good death. You're my people. Do you not think I'm going to give you some water? It's written like this to invite us in so that we may relate to the faithfulness of God to rescue his people when they need rescuing. The vast majority of us will never be able to relate to how much the people in this story needed to know that they were going to be rescued. Um, it's the, the story that was famously clung to by the slaves in this country for years and years as they waited for their rescue. Our God is a God who rescues and sustains his people. This is shown to them and to us over and over again. And yet, we're made to relate to how hard it is for them and for us to trust him, even when he's already shown us who he is. It's written so that we may relate to how, and this was such a simple point that was made in one of the commentaries this week, but how patient God is. How incredibly changed we would be if we really understood his patience. How he understands our fears, our literal or figurative thirst. Our fear of loss, of pain, of death. Our fears of just not getting whatever it is we think we need in this life to live the life that we want to live, whatever that looks like. 
Until we understand his patience with us, we can't really go to him with those fears. I think that's the point. And if we can't go to him, we also can't accept his help with it. A couple of weeks ago, Ed spoke on the frustrating yet powerful truth of how closely God draws near to us when we're waiting, about how often it's the periods of, of agony and darkness in those places that he really does draw near us the, the, the nearest and closest. Um, I think if I were to rank the two dark periods of my life between the one that he was speaking about and uh, the darkest days of COVID, I probably would go with, with COVID. Um, I know that a lot of us had some of our worst days during the months and months of lockdown. One of these, those days, <clears throat> I had been thinking quite often, it was coming up quite a lot, um, this picture that we have of Jesus is told in all four of the Gospels, um, where the disciples are on the boat. It's a big storm, and there's, there's a slight variation of uh, there's a degree of variation of what Jesus says, but it's something along in each thing. It's around, why are you afraid? It's me. Have faith. And what I realized on this day in COVID was that any time I've ever heard that account before, all the sermons, all the reading, all the anything, I've always seen the same expression on Jesus' face, and it was kind of that. It was kind of like, for goodness sake, how much have I told you this? Why do you not believe what I say to you? And in this experience I had on this day during COVID, I had this very stark vision, almost like I kind of felt waves and um, wind in my hair. It was very, very vivid. And I haven't had many of those in my life, but this was kind of incredible. And the, and the striking thing about it was the expression on Jesus' face as he said those words. And there was nothing rebuky or disappointed or exasperated at all. It was pure love and understanding and grace. If we don't understand how patient he is with us and how hard it is for us to trust him despite what he's already shown us, it's very hard to come to him. So back to the passage. Um, something significant in the fact that quarreling is now mentioned as well as grumbling. Why do you quarrel with me, verse two? Why do you put the Lord to the test? So commentators point out something that I'd never noticed before in the Hebrew, um, mainly because I don't speak Hebrew, um, is that the word for quarreling is technically the word to bring a charge, to institute legal proceedings. Uh, Moses, <clears throat> this guy who's followed God's call, bravely led them out of Egypt, and um, has been used to date in several instances of the being, them being miraculously provided for, is now being accused of criminal negligence. And I will refer you back, if you weren't here last week, please do go back, go back and listen to Bill's talk, especially if leadership is something that you are currently involved in. Um, at the point that he made about how we are as leaders, magnets for people's discontent is something extremely important to wrestle with and work out your stuff around. The Lord answers Moses, go out in front of the people, Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the, for the people to drink. So to go out in front and to take the elders and to have the staff 
is language uh, given specifically to depict a trial. The staff is very significant. It's a symbol of judicial authority, not just to the Hebrews, um, to a large number of ancient cultures. The people want a trial, says God, so let's give them one. But notice how it's written. Take in your hands the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, I will stand there before you. To stand before is the language of an inferior in the presence of a superior, a subject in front of a king, a criminal in front of a judge. It is God who is putting himself on trial here. It was him who took the blow of justice like the staff on the rock. It is God who will be found guilty. When Jesus spoke of his thirst on the cross, he was reminding his people of this scene, of their thirst in the wilderness, that he has now been put on trial and now found guilty and was taking their place as he hung there. <clears throat> the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses, Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner, he said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. What about the Amalekites, though? What are we to do with this and how entirely uncomfortable this is to our sensibilities? What about the drowned Egyptians, for that matter? What about how it says God deliberately hardened Pharaoh's heart against him? I truly believe that some of the uh, biggest stumbling blocks to 21st century Christians becoming the fully integrated Christians in our trust and love of God and his word are passages like this in the Old Testament because of how offensive and irreconcilable it is with our worldview and our ideas about who God is and the value of every human life. It's people we're talking about, a whole tribe of people, thousands and thousands of them, many of them in no way responsible for the siege on wandering Israelites that day because they weren't even there. It's deeply uncomfortable to us, isn't it? Because of our understanding of the value of every individual human life and what we've seen of the evil that can be justified in the killing of God's enemies if, if we take our theology and, and do it that way. I'll focus on the log in my own eye before anyone else's uh, religious nationalism spec. This was the exact and precise theological rationale of many of my countrymen's practice when they got here to America and committed genocide to the indigenous population of this land. As a matter of historical record, those are the enemies of our 
of our God, or those people are the enemies of our God, is a quote from one of the major, major um, genocidal battles. It's abhorrent to us today, isn't it, to kill people and claim that it's God's will. And another problem that we have, aside from the moral abhorrence, is that it seems to conflict with who we follow in Jesus. It says that he was the true word of God, the divine logic of his ways, and all of the peacemaking he blessed, and all of the turning the other cheeks, and loving your enemy, and praying for your enemy that he spoke about, as well as the fact that rather than defeat the enemies who rose against him and put him on trial, he surrendered to them and was executed. So how, if we believe that Jesus and God are one, that Jesus, as Hebrews 1 says, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, how can we fit all this together and make whole, integrated, both testaments sense of this? Well, there are a number of ways. And it's a huge and important conversation and not one I'm going to attempt to fully solve in, the, in a paragraph of this talk. You've probably, you should be pleased to hear. The Bible makes it very clear that God doesn't change. I, the Lord, never change. I am who I am, the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the same yesterday, today and forever. And you should actually know, even on our leadership team, we have very different understandings of of how we reconcile these two things, and it's something that we encourage debate around. But I encourage you to do it, because being integrated is absolutely crucial to spiritual health. So if you have these kinds of questions, ask us about what books to read, ask us about what the different theories are, do the work yourself, but do do it. This section of Exodus is drawn from a number of sources of various ages, at various, sorry, number of sources of various ages, but all from within the Iron Age, um, which was a brutal tribal time to be alive. The gods of neighboring uh, cultures were brutal and tribal too. This is just how people in that time expressed their faith, expressed their understanding of the gods. It's what gods did. They went to battle for their people. So the significant thing actually about this is how patient this God, Israel's God is, how he's their provider, how he makes promises to them that he didn't destroy them when they were unfaithful to him. This was always the point. Throughout the rest of the writings of the ancient Hebrews, plenty of other images of God develop. As you know, God the gardener, God the potter, God the father, mother, Warrior God appears less and less. By Jonah, written roughly 500 years later than the older parts of Exodus, God says he doesn't want to kill Israel's enemies. So the question becomes around how we read them then. Are these actual accounts of what definitely happened? Some people believe so, yes. You are welcome here if you believe that too how God spoke, exactly how he acted, and exactly the order that it happened. It's something that far better minds than mine have argued about since the dawn of this whole thing. Were they intended to be read primarily as something to be defended historically, or were they stories of truth? Accounts of who God is 
in truth of what he is like in ways that always preempted and pointed towards Jesus. Big and small details of what would happen in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Where the true identity of the enemy of God's people has been unmasked. Not as a tribe, or as a nation, or a king, but as a spiritual power. An enmity with the kingdom of God. A battle that has been decisively won when Jesus rose again, but it still rages and will rage until he returns. Our struggle, as Paul said in Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the darkness in this world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So just to point this out, actually, when we sing songs about our enemies, I think we had one this morning, when we quote psalms about our enemies, about overcoming them, defeating them, trampling them, we are never talking about people. This is not about your vindictive boss or your lying ex. This is not about opposing political parties or nation states in war. Our enemies are never, ever people. Our enemies are spiritual forces at work in the minutia of our lives, charged with distracting, demeaning, and undermining everything about your identity as a follower of Jesus. <clears throat> a quick note on the final episode of this section um, of the Exodus story. Um, so it kind of, there's a seam in the story when Moses goes up the mountain. This is the end of it. Chapter 18. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for the people and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt, and came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for the Israel's sake, and, heard, and about all the hardships they had met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. Then he brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Jethro, hears what God has done for Israel, a tribe that's not his tribe, and bursts out in praise. So remember that he is a priest of an alternate tribe. He worships other gods. And that burning an offering is a symbol of total commitment, indicating that he is the first person in the whole of the Bible whose detailed conversion story we are told. The Jethro story here, most scholars agree, was actually written at a later date and then the rest of this story in this section and was inserted here very deliberately as Israel arrives at the mountain, just before Moses um, goes up to talk to God for the first time. Before the Ten Commandments, before the chapters of detailed instruction of, of how he's going to call them to live, chapters and chapters of it, before instruction on how to build the tabernacle so that his presence can dwell among them wherever we go. 
and before this instruction that's coming in at the start of all that in chapter 19. Obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Israel's call was always, always, always about their call to holiness for the sake of the world. It's there in Abraham's call. It's there in, in what's told to Noah after the flood. And it's right here, very, very importantly. It's language that Peter picks up in his first letter um, to the churches in Asia Minor. He's talking to what we as the church are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Israel's call was always about being a light to the world as it, and showing them the example, just as Jethro calls out very poignantly in that moment. I've seen what your God is like. Let me burn an offering to him. And I think that this is something that God really is saying to us as a church. I don't think it's for today. I think this is like a, th a word for the year. It's something that our, our leadership team has been really um, looking at is how we can help you if this is the church that you call home, build it with us. And as an intrinsic part of that, I think needs to be a conscious and deliberate shedding of all of the ways in which our culture's individualism that goes deep into our bones and deep into our theology and deep, really, I believe, into our relationship with Jesus, that we can shed whatever of that is not who we are. Because you'll notice, let's just take the Lord's Prayer, it's all corporate. There's not one I. Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior isn't a thing in that time. And so please do not hear me to say anything other than we normally say around you are welcome here on your own terms. If you need to come and heal, if you need to come and just be around the presence of God, you are welcome here to do that as long as you need to. There will be no terms of membership, no demands put on you. We believe that there is nothing as powerful to bring change as grace and receiving God's power. But to a number of others of us, I think that this sense of it being core to our identity as God's people, to remember that we were always here to give it away, to be light and salt, to be a nation of people who Jethro's look at and go, look what your God's doing. Look what your God's doing in the way that you speak about your enemies, in the healing of your bodies, 
in the way that you share with each other, in the way that you submit to each other, in the way that you speak about each other, in the way that you care for this city. Um, I'd love the bands to come back up. Bill spoke about it last week. It's, it's, it's something we speak to him often that he does talk about quite a lot, this idea of us being a non-anxious presence. I just, I think this is another massive part of it, of just knowing who we are in his peace so well in the depths of our being that it just radiates off us. I think that so many of us have had such experiences of, of what it is to kind of convert, to win people for Jesus. And I do think that, that God wants to kind of reprogram us in that way a bit this morning. So that this is not about like that. That this is about a freedom to be really who we are as a church. That people can't help but go like whatever they know about God is something I want to know. Um, so let's stand.